I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Block. Climate change and the environment are set to be front and center in the upcoming federal election campaign. Extreme weather is being felt from coast to coast to coast, damaging floods in the east, devastating forest fires in the west, and searing heat waves in central Canada, leaving homes and lives destroyed. Many climate scientists are drawing a link between extreme weather and climate change. Last year, insured damage from severe weather events reached $1.9 billion, according to the Insurance Bureau of Canada. For the first time ever, the Bank of Canada flagged climate change as a vulnerability for the national economy. But could Canada benefit from a warming climate? Well, some Canadians are sounding the alarm on climate change, but others argue climate change may in fact lead to greater economic opportunities for Canada. From oil and gas developments in the Arctic to an extended growing season for food production, Canada's former finance minister, Joe Oliver, says it's not all bad. Mr. Oliver, thank you for joining us on the show. Happy to be with you. You've penned a couple of controversial columns, one of which said that Canada would benefit from climate change. Can you explain to us why you think climate change is a good thing for Canada? Well, actually, I cited Moody's Analytics, which did an analysis of the impact of climate change on uh, many countries around the world, and they concluded uh, that with a 1% increase in the temperature, there'd be basically no change in Canada's economy. If it started moving up to 25 or, or to 4%, which is sort of extreme, then you get uh, perhaps a 0.3% increase in the, in the economy of, of this country. So it's not a lot, but the point is, it isn't the dire uh, catastrophe uh, that you keep hearing about. Uh, Canada would in fact be a beneficiary, but we only represent 1.6% of global emissions. And even if we devastated our economy, we would not have a measurable impact on where the global temperature would be in the year 2100. It would be less than one thousandth of, of one degree impact. So. Uh, we can't actually make a difference. So then we're left with the final uh, argument, which is, well, uh, we can't do anything to make a difference, but, but still we should act as, as an example and perhaps we can induce shame or, or create uh, uh, a kind of a moral imperative for other people. Well, that's really a bit of a fantasy. If you look at the four largest emitters, United States, China, uh, India, and Russia, who represent 57% of global emissions, I mean, they don't, uh, they're not going to be influenced in any way by Canada. We're missing an opportunity actually to do something about something concrete, and that is the, the whole issue of extreme weather. And we know that extreme weather is hurting the economy. But there are those who would say it's all well and good to pour money into the infrastructure and to try to deal with these extreme weather events. But if you're not dealing with underlying causes like climate change, then you're pouring money down a black hole. What would you say to them? Well, the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, which is cited very often uh, by, by people who are alarmed about, about the climate, have said that extreme weather is not caused by climate change. And there are other scientists who said the same thing. 
they further said that the amount of, of extreme weather hasn't actually been increasing. Well, you can argue about that. There are st statistics about it. But, but you know, as a matter of fact, that the, the dollar amount has been increasing because there's more infrastructure uh, that's, that, that's being built. So I, I don't take that pessimistic uh, view at all. Mr. Oliver, the IPCC report doesn't actually say there isn't a link. They say the science is not certain, and they also say we have about 12 years to turn things around. 97% of the climate experts around the world say that they believe climate change is real and the global community needs to act. So when you look at the majority of the scientific community saying this is a very serious concern and that they believe there's a strong possibility there is a link versus there's not one. Well, the IPCC said that they, they couldn't find any any evidence, so that's uh, uh, th that's as far as I, I guess they uh, they went. The the ninety seven percent figure is not is not accurate. If you if you look, you you can't find a study where ninety seven percent of the uh, of the scientists said oh, we have twelve years uh, uh, before it becomes irreversible. I mean that's that's exaggerated uh, uh, rhetoric, and I, I don't think we uh, uh, we should be uh, we should be uh, terrifying our our children and, and devastating our economy based on extreme uh, extreme projections, which have been made, I guess, for the last uh, 25 years. I mean, 40 years ago it was global uh, cooling, and that was going to uh, destroy us. Uh, now it's it's global warming, and and there've been there've been predictions one after the other that said we had about 10 or 12 or seven years, and 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 it, it sort of it hasn't happened. I'm not saying that there there isn't a serious issue here, but let's not exaggerate it, and let's do what we can practically to deal with it and not get into a fantasy world. You talk about the advantages for Canada when it comes to climate change and you cite some examples. For example, there could be more arable land that could be farmed, more land that would be available to be drilled on and that could benefit the Canadian economy through fossil fuels. Those potential possibilities are all in the Moody's report you're citing, but the report doesn't take into account some possible detractions like geopolitical refugees from climate change and natural disasters that we've been talking about generated by extreme weather events. Those could possibly cancel out the benefits you're discussing. Are you at all concerned that it's a temporary benefit Canada would see from climate change given these other factors? Well, look, just in terms of the, the arable land issue, uh, the three prairie provinces have double the territory of, of France, and uh, the, the government of Canada, the Agriculture Department, estimated a, an increase of between 26 and 40 percent of, of arable land, potentially, um, uh, by, by 2040. And that's, that's really significant, and not, none too soon, because the UN said that we're, the world is going to need 50 percent more food uh, by 2050. So this is a very serious contribution that Canada can make. There are a number of mayors in Canada, including some of your former colleagues like Ed Holder, Conservatives, who are saying there is a climate crisis and they're declaring that in their cities. Do you agree with them? Well, I don't, I, I don't think we have evidence uh, to suggest that there's an imminent crisis. I mean, people uh, keep talking about it, but, uh, you know, the numbers, the data doesn't support it. Look, the, the computer programs, with the exception of the Russians, have been consistently wrong. I mean, and that's, that's simply historical fact. What would you say to fellow Conservatives like Preston Manning or Mark Cameron who say you have to look at a carbon tax, you have to do something about what's happening? Well, you know, this argument, you have to do something even if it'll accomplish nothing, 
leaves me a little bit uh, cold. I mean, look, I was, uh, I was in Papua New Guinea where the amount of, of, of people bereft of, of, who don't have access to electricity is, is, you know, is over 80%. And, um, you know, if they don't get on with exploiting their, their coal resources, uh, people will continue to leave, uh, live in, in, in misery, in poverty, uh, with high uh, mortality rates. I think you have to, t to pause and say, well, wait a minute, w where's my moral responsibility? Mr. Oliver, thank you very much for joining us and sharing your views on this topic. We appreciate your time. You're most welcome. Thank you. According to NASA, 97% of climate scientists believe humans are causing global warming and climate change. Glaciers are melting into the sea, sea levels are rising, and many nations are spending millions of dollars to reinforce coastlines and relocate residents affected by rising water. So what are the costs of climate change? Joining me now from Vancouver is Kai Chan. He's a professor at the Institute for Resources, Environment and Sustainability at the University of British Columbia. Thanks for joining us, Kai. Thanks for having me on the show. Now, we just heard from Joe Oliver, former federal finance minister. He argues that there's a lot of benefits that Canada could see as a result of climate change. He's not arguing over whether or not it could happen. He's saying, look, it's not all bad if it is happening. How do you respond to those arguments? Do you believe that climate change would be a good thing for Canada? There are going to be some benefits for Canada, for sure. But the way that... Joe Oliver has presented it is really misleading. And so, you know, one of the arguments is that the economy is going to be a net neutral unless climate change goes to a really high level. Now, that's really misleading because that's measured through GDP. And GDP as a measure of economic output rises when we have extreme events that cause catastrophic damage that we then have to repair, right? So those construction activities actually contribute a lot to the economy, the way that the GDP measures it, right? It doesn't properly ca characterize the losses that we experience as, as individuals and as communities. He cites that Moody's report as having more arable land that could be farmed, more areas that could be drilled. What are some of the specific costs that Canada would incur if climate change continues at the same rate? Yeah, so for every benefit, there is a similar kind of cost, right? And so it's true that there is more arable land, and, but as precipitation patterns change, we're going to see less precipitation in some of those important growing areas, much longer droughts. Um, more risk of forest fires, greater risk of floods, and then in particular up north in northern communities, we're going to see a melting of permafrost that is going to cause a ton of damage to the infrastructure there because that infrastructure is based on the permafrost. As the permafrost melts, so that's basically frozen ground underneath, then the buildings really buckle. Buildings and bridges and roads buckle and just kind of sink into the ground. So there are going to be lots of costs that are associated with climate change, and there are going to be a few benefits. Um, one major question is whether those who are bearing the costs are really being compensated for that. Um, and I don't expect that the benefits are actually going to outweigh the costs when you take a whole perspective to it. Some say, look, the science is clear, there is consensus, there is climate change happening, and it is as a result of human activity. Others say, no, if you look at it, it's not as clear as people think. Look, we just had a cold summer. It can't always be warming if I'm experiencing something that tells me differently. What does the science say about where we're at in terms of climate change and what's causing it? So the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, is really clear. And this is the most authoritative body on climate change. They say it's virtually certain that climate change is happening and that it's due to human causes. So 
There's really no more room for doubt about that. Absolutely, there are natural causes that also contribute to climate change, but it's, they seem to be smaller contributors than human-caused ones, including the rise in greenhouse gases. Global climate change, although it's going to warm the planet on average, is going to have regionally variable results. So when we look at the average global temperatures, it is clear that those are rising, but that manifests in weird weather, right? And so some scientists are calling it global weirding, um, in order to account for that fact that in some places we are going to see some cooling actually, at least during some seasons, um, but we're also going to see a lot of other strange things like increased floods and fires, etc. And speaking of those floods and fires, one of the things we talked to Mr. Oliver about was the link between climate change and extreme weather events, which can be very expensive for yeah. governments, for individuals, for insurance agencies. And he was saying that that IPCC report doesn't clearly make the link between climate change and extreme weather events. What do we know about the science that, that suggests whether or not there is a link and how much do we really know about that? Yeah, I mean, it's really clear from my read of the IPCC that they established that there is a very clear link between forest fires, between floods, and other kinds of extreme events, especially droughts, of course. Um, with he might be thinking more of tornadoes and hurricanes there it is less clear whether climate change is contributing to an increased incidence so an increased number of those extreme events but it's pretty clear that it is contributing to a larger a greater magnitude of those extreme events um, so going back though to the ones where it's more clear more flooding for sure when you've got a warmer atmosphere that warmer atmosphere can hold more water and it releases it in more ex more extreme events, right? More stronger rainfall. Um, it's not the only cause in terms of contributing to flooding. We also have land use patterns and um, the clearing of wetlands. Too much concrete, basically, in cities. Fires also very clearly contributed to, to climate change through the increase in droughts, which dries out the fuel load and then also makes the temperatures in many cases warmer. So you've got a long dry summer, sets up basically a tinderbox in some forests. So th those, those connections are made very clearly in the IPCC report. I'm not sure what Joe Oliver is talking about when he refutes that. Kai, there are those who say, look, people are being alarmist. What do you think the consequences are if we continue at the current rate, both in terms of climate change and in terms of the level of action that the Canadian government is taking for Canadians living right here at home? So there's two ways of seeing this. I mean, one is to recognize that our most important role in terms of contributing to this problem and, and, and receiving impacts from global climate change is basically our perception on the world stage and how that re is reflected in foreign policy as we receive it as well as export it. Canadians have this reputation. When you go abroad, for the most part, people think of Canada as a sane place, as a good contributor to the world. That, ero that reputation has already been eroded somewhat due to our policy on climate change. The fact that for many years in international climate negotiations, Canada won the Fossil of the Year Award, meaning that it had the most outdated policies, the most regressive, and the most, you know, the most dangerous in terms of contributing to an undermining of the world order. Right? So already we're seeing Canada's kind of role as a responsible agent in the world being eroded. We've already seen a lot of dangerous fires like the one in Fort Murray from a few years ago and floods, including in Calgary, in Toronto and elsewhere, um, in Ottawa, 
over this last year. So these kinds of events are surely going to continue. They're going to become more and more normal as climate change picks up pace, which it will do just because of the inertia in the system. So it's time to get serious about turning that around and slowing climate change down. Kai, thank you so much for joining us. The environment and climate change are expected to be two key issues in the upcoming federal election. In a recent poll by Abacus Data, 42% of Canadians said they believe climate change is now an emergency. So we figured it was time for a report card on each of the party's platforms as Canadians head to the polls. Joining me now from Barrie, Ontario, is Michael Bernstein, Executive Director of Canadians for Clean Prosperity. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the four main national political parties for the election coming. The government, of course, has had the most time to show us what their climate plan looks like. What do you make of the Liberals and their performance to this point? Well, they've taken a few steps in the right direction. Uh, they're using the best tool we have to fight climate change, which is a carbon tax and rebate program, a program that we know can be effective to reduce our carbon pollution and at the same time puts money right back in the pockets of uh, Canadians. So that's an important step. Um, I would like to see them go further. Uh, as you probably know, their plan today does not help, uh, meet the uh, Paris climate targets that have been internationally agreed to. Uh, and they've said they're going to announce a, a bolder plan in September, so we'll have to see what that holds. Turning to the Conservatives, they'd said that they would eliminate the carbon tax and replace it by taxing heavy emitters instead. Do you think that that's a good plan and it would be enough to help us reach our greenhouse gas targets in the Paris Agreement? Unfortunately, the Conservative plan is, uh, is, is not a credible plan. Uh, under their plan, we're going to actually see emissions grow uh, from, uh, from the status quo situation we have today. And at the same time, as you say, they're taking away the best tool we have in our toolkit, the carbon tax and rebate program, and replacing it with much pricier government regulations. So uh, I hope they'll reconsider because I don't believe their plan is, is really a, a credible plan to address what we know we need to address, which is, which is the urgent situation of climate change. Continuing with our report card theme here, turning to the NDP, how would you rate their environmental proposals for the coming election? The NDP has the right ambition. So they have said they are going to try to meet the international uh, targets that are needed to help us avoid the worst impacts of climate change. So that's really important. Uh, and also po uh, on the positive side, they are also going to be keeping in place that carbon tax and rebate program that I talked about. Uh, they're layering on top of that plan some additional regulations. For example, they want to retrofit every building in Canada by 2050. And I think they have the right idea, the right ambition with that. But what I'd like to see is a program that's, uh, that's lower cost, that leverages the private sector, which would really be more about increasing gradually that carbon tax and rebate policy rather than these kinds of uh, government regulations. Looking at the Green Party, who, just given the name, one would assume has the most robust potential climate plan, how would you rate what they're proposing to Canadian voters? Well, that's right. They do have the most robust plan. They have a very ambitious target to reduce carbon pollution all across the economy by 60% in the next 11 years, by 2030. So their ambition is absolutely the highest. Uh, they do want to keep in place that carbon price, that carbon tax and rebate program, which we know is needed. Uh, and then they layer on additional regulations uh, that go 
above and beyond what you see from the NDP. Uh, and again, that's the right ambition. They have the right idea. They want us to reduce our pollution, uh, which is something we know Canadians support. But I would like to see them use a more market-based, a more private sector approach uh, rather than the, the government regulation approach. How do parties find that balance? Because polls show that a lot of Canadians want to see something done to combat climate change, but sometimes when it comes to paying for it, they're not as big of fans in terms of turning money out of their pockets. How do parties balance that to propose something that allows for both prosperity and the environment to benefit? Well, that's that's exactly our goal. I mean, that's why we're called Clean Prosperity, is we're trying to say we can protect our environment and promote economic growth at the same time. Uh, the best tool to do that is what I, what I spoke about earlier is the carbon tax and rebate because this puts a price on carbon pollution. It gives everybody across the economy incentive to reduce their emissions because we're making that pollution more expensive. But then importantly, it sends all the money back to families and businesses. So families can afford it, businesses can afford to make changes. And then those people who invest in reducing their pollution are actually, actually gonna be rewarded for it. Michael, why is it the political parties, including parties like the Liberals, haven't wanted to make the kinds of commitments they would need to to get us to the Paris targets? And I think of things like the carbon tax, where experts have said we're not near the level it would have to be at to actually have us meet those international commitments. Yeah, that's right. I, I would like to see the parties, including the Liberal Party, commit to a gradually rising carbon tax. This is something that can rise gradually over time, year after year. Um, and, I, and I think this really is about getting Canadians used to the fact that there are ways that we can change, we can change gradually. They're not only going to allow us to reduce our pollution, but they're going to be affordable and they're going to actually support economic growth. Turning just briefly towards extreme weather, which has been something that has caught more and more attention of Canadians in past years, there are those who say the government needs to do more in terms of regulations to try to protect Canadians from how this is developing. What do you think the government should be doing in terms of protecting people against floods, fires, uh, and all the extreme weather patterns that there's been concern about in recent years? So we can, we can do a number of things. Um, we can look into zoning laws to make sure people aren't building in places where we know flooding will occur. We can be regulating how people, uh, how people build new homes to make sure that they have the equipment they need to deal with potential flooding. Uh, and adaptation is really important. It's something we do need to do. But I would say I think it's, it's really a sideshow to the much more important challenge, which is reducing our carbon pollution. Michael, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure to be with you. That's all the time we have for today. Please be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or go to our website, thewestblock.ca. I'm Mercedes Stevenson for The West Walk.